1: Say What? is the radio program of Protect Our Kids, which seeks to inform and equip concerned citizens about the looming crisis in American education. So listen in as your hosts, Mark Schneider and George Roska Jr., unpack the issues and organizations affecting our children. And now here's your hosts, Mark Schneider and George Roska Jr.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm George Roska. And we want to welcome you to today's episode 23 of Say What, where we talk about threats to our children in the public school system, including understanding the history of American education.
3: That's right, George. You know, many Americans just assume that the public education system that we have today has always been with us and that it's responsible for producing the most educated people the world has ever known. But as you and I both know, that's just not
2: the case. I agree, Mark. And, you know, long before America even became a nation in 1776, uh, the colonists uh, arguably were better educated than most Americans today, weren't they? Indeed, they were.
3: To, uh, actually, over the next couple of weeks, but before we get into the details of what education used to be in our country, we should probably provide some context for people of where it is today, uh, starting with the fact that according to the U.S. Department of Education, America spends more on education per student than virtually every developed nation on Earth. Wow.
2: Wow. What numbers are we talking about, Mark?
3: Well, in 2017, um, when we have the, the most recent data, the, the figure was $14,100 per full-time student for to 12 education, which at the time was 37% higher than other developed nations. So that was 2017, George. Spending has gone up from there, so the figures are even uh, more out of today. And... That's for primary and secondary education. For post-secondary education, the figures are even worse. $34,500 per student compared to $17,000 a student for other developed nations in America is typically uh, compared to, according to the National Center for Education Statistics.
2: And that post-secondary means college?
3: It means college. College and Postgraduate School. Wow. But here's the irony, George, as we both know. For all the money that we're throwing at education, fancy buildings, computers, uh, expensive curriculums, school administrators, uh, well-paid teachers, according to most authorities, including the Pew Foundation, um, Americans rank in the middle middle to bottom rows of academic performance compared to the nations, which are spending far less than we are today.
2: I wonder what they're doing different than us.
3: Well, we're going to find out. But in California, we consistently rank in the bottom 20% of American states, which are already not performing nearly as well as other competitive nations.
2: And that's a say-what moment for me, Mark, because when you mentioned that and the 14,000 student. You know, per student, on that's on the average across America. Yes, right. I have to believe it's higher here in California because of our cost of living. It,
3: it probably is. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the other irony, George, of course, as you know, is that the argument is always, and we hear this all the time, particularly around election time, which we're in, we're in that we just finished the cycle. The problem is money. We need to throw more money at the problem. That's the issue. We need more teachers. We need more buildings. Uh, we, we need more uh, technology helps to our students, and that will solve the problem. But history does not bear that out. I'll just give you a couple of figures here. The literacy rate in, in 1840, now this was prior to the imposition of compulsory education in mm-hmm. America,
2: was 90%. Wow.
3: 90%. Compare that with today, the literacy Literacy rate, according to the California Policy Center, is 75%.
2: Oh, my. Oh, my. That's a say what?
3: That's a say what moment. Um, And it's not like, you know, we haven't known what's been going on. We've been aware of the decline in American education for decades now. In fact, in 1983, it's almost 40 years ago, uh, there was this famous report that came out called A Nation at Risk. It was done by the National Commission on Excellence in Education. Now, this is what the report concluded. This is a quote. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this
2: to happen ourselves no i mean that that's deep that's deep because i think what we have seen especially now over the last year and a half is all of this you know marxist induced worldview and organizations that are hiding behind fancy names and very positive names and so i think that uh, that ethos has been running through those kind of organizations for decades to try and accomplish this. Well, you
3: just hit on something very important that we're going we're to get into, and that is the emphasis of education. What is it that we're focusing on in education? And I guess just as importantly, what, what is it that we're no longer focusing on in education? But let's talk a little bit about education at the time of our founding. This is is quite astounding to me. Most people today have no idea. They may have heard this term, the Federalist Papers, Mm -hmm. but they don't actually know what it is. So the Federalist Papers was a series of 86 articles that were written by three key people. Um, the founders, James Madison, John Jay, and Alexander Hamilton, to convince a wary public about the benefits of passing this new constitution that had been proposed in Philadelphia, you know, starting in 1776 with the Revolutionary War. Ten years later, the the war was over, and they had to draft uh, a new constitution to decide how to govern the new United States of America. Well, before that, of course, what had been in place is the Articles of what yep. That's what should have governed the 13 colonies, a very sort of loose-knit uh, amalgam of, uh, of, of government leaders. So the goal with the Federalist Papers was to convince a wary public about are we going to do? Are we actually going to ratify this this Constitution? So these articles were written over a period of time, and they were published in I guess today's equivalent of the New York Times, uh, and they were written for the common man. But if you read these articles today, George, you are just blown away by the erudition, the knowledge, the wisdom of these people, the language that they used. And again, I want to emphasize, these articles were written just for anybody that picks up a newspaper and reads them. They were expected that they would understand this language, this concept, this articulation, and they did.
2: Wow. You know, uh, in in high school, um, we were introduced to this, and and that's probably because I was in the AP U.S. history class. But I'm wondering how many U.S. history classes today, even in high school, mention or even provide some of these as sample readings, you know, for homework.
3: So you, you, they were mentioned, but you didn't actually read them? In your I,
2: we read, I think, a couple of the articles. Okay, Yeah.
3: Good. I think you're in the very rare minority. It's probably even more so today. I would be surprised if uh, one in a hundred uh, high school students could tell you what the Federalist Papers were all about. But there was a, a, a study conducted in 1800 by a man named DuPont A. Nemours, which revealed that only four in a thousand Americans were unable to read and write legibly. That was the year 1800, long before we had compulsory education uh, here in the United States. Ben Franklin, George, uh, one of our, our founders, taught himself five languages, and he was not considered exceptional. <laughs> know you all and we think you're exceptional, but back in the day, that was that was just sort of common. Thomas Jefferson, he spoke a half dozen languages. Wow. Including Arabic. George Washington, our first president, chided himself for his lack of formal education, but he's marveled at today when you read his writings and his erudition and, and his speeches. So, uh, you know, um, it's just amazing. Of course, back then also, society was filled with many, many volunteer organizations, debate societies, political groups, lyceums, lecture and Bible societies, and members of these societies were expected to know the works of Shakespeare uh, in classical literature, like Virgil, Plutarch, Cicero, and Homer, and they did. Americans were educated in this classical education model. Very different from what they're being educated in today. Uh, in the same way, uh, people that went to seminaries, they were required to know Greek, Hebrew, Latin, French, and German, not as part of their uh, seminary curriculum before they got in. Oh, my. They had to know these languages. Wow. Abraham Lincoln, uh, who got a frontier education, is still regarded as one of the greatest expositors of the written word, if not the greatest, that American politics has ever produced. And he was a guy that was educated in the backwoods, pretty much educated himself.
2: Back back when presidents were writing their own speeches? Exactly.
3: (laughs) So something radically has changed over the last hundred years or so, particularly the last – 50. and I, I think it's important that our audience understand what that change is and to begin this this discussion um, into our history uh, let's look at the the purpose and order of emphasis for education when America when the when the puritans and pilgrims first landed on the shores of the new world so we're going all the way back to 1620 mm-hmm and we're going, to, we're going to sort of analyze what happened for the next 200 years, 1620 to basically the 1840s. And here's the very interesting thing, George. There were three primary purposes of education in the first 200 years of American existence. And this is what it was. Number one, first and prim- primary, to educate children according to a biblical worldview. That was number one. Education was meant uh, primarily for character development, and the best way to uh, help children uh, acquire that character was through teaching from directly from the scriptures, from the
2: Bible. I was I was reading uh, I was uh, listening to David Barton on YouTube, and he has uh, his organization Wall Builders, and I had never known yeah, I had never known a lot of this history that you're going to mention right now, but one of the most shocking things for me was that the Continental Congress, shortly thereafter we won the war, made an order of 10,000 Bibles to be spread across the land to help people read, teach them, understanding what to be you know good members in society, uh, be part of the way we educate. The, the the you know the public at large.
3: This was one of the first acts of the Continental Congress during that time. Ten thousand Bibles. Now you have to know that the population at that time was very small mm-hmm. to today. So yeah, you're right. I mean, this was just part of the culture at that time. So that was number one to educate children according to a biblical worldview. The second purpose was to provide a classical education again, focused on building good character. That's why our founders knew Cicero and Plutarch and Virgil and all, all of these classics and, and even Shakespeare, because these were the, the pillars of Western society. This is what led to the values that ultimately led to the American Revolution and wanted to be an independent society. And then finally, George, finally, the purpose of education was to teach profici- proficiency, in reading, writing, and arithmetic, what we call the three yards. Mm-hmm. So, character first, and we got that through the scriptures. Uh, a good character also, and a knowledge of history, because those who don't know history are condemned to repeat it, as George Santayana said. So that was the second foundation. You've got to know history. And number three, practical knowledge in reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that produced the greatest or the most educated people that the world had ever known. And the greatest society that the world had ever known. And here's something that's equally important important to understand. The primary authority for education was not public school administrators. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't exist. It was parents. Yep. It wasn't even the teacher of the one-room schoolhouse. It was primarily parents. They were the authority. It was, and they knew it was their responsibility to inculcate this teaching upon their children, given to them by God.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you can only imagine. I mean, parents in our day and age were trying to um, imagine what it would be like to be a parent then, and how how would you find time to do all this uh amongst all the you know agrarian based society. So you're you know, if you're a mom, you're have a bunch of stuff to take care of. There's no washing and drying, you know, there's no <laughs> you do all that by hand, right? Where do you fit all of that in your daily life? But they did. They did. Somehow
3: they figured it out. I mean they were working so hard, you know, just working all day long, just put food on the table at night, but somehow they were able to figure that out. I think it's because they have their priorities in place.
2: Yes. So
3: it wasn't until the 1940s that the biblical worldview was a seriously challenging public education. Um, but since then, I mean, we know what's happened in American society. That's why Protect Our Kids was formed. Um, while over 25% of Americans still identify themselves as evangelical, 25% the Bardi group found that only 4% actually fold to a biblical worldview. When they're actually questioned about what their faith meant, it came down to 4%. So something very radical has happened. And in uh, around the late 1940s in the 1950s, the shift in emphasis for education started to occur. started to occur. <laughs> Primary focus of education wasn't to uh, teach children a biblical worldview and to provide them with a classical education. Now there was a twofold emphasis. Number one, to teach proficiency in reading, writing, and math. That was number one. We got to make them competitive on the world scene. Mm-hmm. And number two, and perhaps even more importantly, George, to teach a secular worldview.
2: So the priorities have completely shifted.
3: Completely flipped, and starting in around 1970, it flipped even more. Now the primary goal of education is not to teach proficiency in reading, writing, or arithmetic. That would be the secondary goal, the primary goal that now would be to teach a secular worldview. And you can see that by the curriculums and the teaching mandates it started to be rolled out in that time period, late 1960s, early 70s.
2: And also the emphasis on, on government and teachers instead of parents.
3: That is exactly right. So just to provide a little more context, as we're going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks, um, to appreciate the heights from which we fall, and you first have to understand where we started. All of America's most celebrated institutions, we're talking about Harvard, Yale, Princeton, mm-hmm. their purpose was to train people to go into the ministry. They, they started as seminaries. In fact, Yale's crest is still Luxet veritas, which means light and truth, drawn directly from, from the scriptures. Princeton's crest is de sublumine or under God she flourishes. So it's amazing when you think of this. Nobody pays attention to this anymore, but that's how these institutions started. Before 1850, virtually all education in America was private. There were no public state schools prior to 1820. And although the three R's were were taught and mastered, the emphasis of education was not on practical skills, but on spiritual and character development. In fact... President Zachary Taylor. So now we're going all the way up to, he he was president uh, in 1849, in 1850, even by then, right? Mm -hmm. So this is almost 200 years later after the Puritans arrived. This is what he wrote. This is a, a direct quote. The Bible is the best of books, and I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. A free government cannot exist without religion and morals, and there cannot be morals without religion, nor religion without the Bible, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book.
2: Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, today we only think the Bible belongs in a uh, hotel room, in, in a drawer somewhere, or in a, in a prison cell. Uh, the, you
3: know, that's about the extent of it. But that was, that was the, the, the culture back then, and that was not controversial back back in 1850. Everybody accepted that. Oh yeah, of course, of course that's correct. Now, you would think 50 years later, you know, things may have changed dramatically. And indeed, they were starting to change. But listen to what President Teddy Roosevelt said. He wrote, and this is again a quote, the teaching of the Bible, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally, I do not mean figuratively, I mean literally impossible for us to figure to ourselves what life would be like if these teachings were removed. So I plead not merely for training of the mind, but for the moral and spiritual training that have always been found and that have ever accompanied the study of this book.
2: (laughs) Wow. I mean, this is unthinkable today for a president to say something like this. Yeah, Uh,
3: no president would even have a chance of saying anything like this today. So, but you have to understand, George, that going back, this was a time that Americans for centuries had been educated on the biblical worldview. The first textbook for, for the American colonies was the Puritan New England Primer. It became the most successful educational textbook published in the 18th century, and the foundation for all schools before the 1790s. And I know you know this, but children learn the alphabet, for instance, through Christian homilies. For the letter A, for example, uh, you have the homily, In Adam's fall. we send all. For the letter B, Thy life to mend. this book attend. For the letter P, Peter denies his Lord and cries. For S, Samuel anoints whom God appoints. Now, this primer was widely popular in the colonial schools and was only supplanted by Noah Webster's blue-backed speller after 1790. And Webster's goal was to provide a uniquely American, Christ-centered approach to training children. Little did he know, George, that this remarkable little gym would become the staple for parents and educators for more than a century and built the most literate nation on the planet on the planet. Wow. The founding fathers used this book to homeschool their own children, including Ben Franklin, who taught his granddaughter to read, spell, and pronounce words using what he called old blueback." <laughs> and, of course, as we know, Webster was known as the schoolmaster of America, and he wrote famously... No truth is more evident to my mind than, the Christian, than that the Christian religion must, must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. How far we've come.
2: How far we've come, Mark, and I know we're going to continue on next week uh, with the same topic.
3: We are, but before we leave today's subject, um, I I want to just encourage people, please come back and hear the rest of of this this discussion. It's it's really important. And I also want to let you know that um, this this is fundraising time for Protect Our Kids. And we will be having a fundraiser next month. Mm-hmm. And we still have opportunities, George, for people who view the value of this ministry uh, to open their pockets and to be generous. In fact, we have gold and silver and bronze sponsorships. And if any of our listeners are interested in helping us out, please contact us at info at
2: and we will certainly get in touch with you. Yeah. So until then, we'll see you next time.
1: Take care.